Well, good morning. Thank you for being here with us. I know many of you already know me, but for any that don't, I'm Josh Didier. I am a campus minister here with Campus Collective Christian Ministries, serving students here at UW-Madison. Um, not only is this my our home church here in Madison, but uh, the church here also is a partner in our ministry, and so we thank you for that support. And it's exciting for me to be able to share this part of ministry with all of you. I came from doing pastoral ministry before moving into campus ministry, and I enjoy the preaching part of ministry. I enjoy getting to serve in this with all of you and also serve our pastors in this way, so I appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and open up the Word with you, share what, what the Lord is saying through His Word, and also a little bit of what He's doing in my heart and my heart for ministry. So, um, as we got into this passage and David asked me if I would preach on John 6, 1 through 21, I looked at it and at first I did a little bit of a double take because I saw it and it's going to cover a little bit of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then we also go into Jesus walking on the water. And for those of you that are familiar with these passages, we know often we kind of break those two up and we treat them as two very different events. But as I read through it, a couple of times, I got really excited about where this is going and like the significance of the two together. Because sometimes we break up passages so much and we kind of lose their context and we forget to see the themes and the lines running through passages and how they connect together in the story of what Christ has done. And so I would like to take a moment today and just read through that passage for you before we get started. Starting at John chapter six, I'll start in verse one. It says, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come, in, come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind that was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's take a moment and let's pray before we get further into this passage. Lord, I thank you for this time that we have to draw together into your word, to learn from you, and to hear your voice. 
Lord, I pray that today your voice would be more prominent than mine, that I would only speak the words that you have led me to speak. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be prepared to, to better understand you as our king. Lord, to accept you for the king that you are. Lord, that we would not try to change you into something that you are not. Lord, I pray that we would be ready to, to hear your word, to hear your voice, and to come to you humbly and in submission. In your name I pray. Amen. As I was preparing this passage, there's a, a movie scene that stood out to me. It's one that I've, has fascinated me for a long time. And it's at the end of the movie, The Dark Knight Rises. And there's been this man throughout the movie who's been sort of a hero in Gotham, Richard Dent, or sorry, Harvey Dent, not Richard Dent. Sorry, my mind's on football today, apparently too. But anyway, so Harvey Dent has been a lawyer and he's been standing up for change in the city and the people are rallying around him and they're excited. And then on the other side, you have Batman, who's dealing with criminals as a vigilante. He's going out outside of the law and trying to stop these evil men. Throughout the movie, we see that Harvey Dent becomes corrupted and he dies by the end of this movie. And Batman is still basically on the run after fighting evil. And the police chief who had believed in what Harvey Dent was doing and is disappointed by the way things ended also believes in what Batman is doing and understands his importance to the city. And the scene goes back and forth between a speech from the police chief at Harvey Dent's funeral and then to a conversation he's having with his son about Batman. And it shows him referring to Harvey Dent. He says, he is not the hero we deserved, but the one Gotham needed. And then it moves over to the conversation with his son, his son asking, why are we chasing Batman? And he says, because he's the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. He's contrasting the two heroes, realizing they each had things that this city wanted and needed, realizing they each have had a time and a place. But as I looked at this passage, the thing that stood out to me is, and the reason I chose this title is, Jesus is the king we need but he's not always the king that we want. And I think that's something we confront in this passage as people are beginning to see who Jesus is. They want him to be one thing, but don't always grasp who he truly is. So as we begin in this passage, I want us to keep that in mind. In verse one, we get into my first point in this message, which is that God provides in his own way. And specifically first, he uses his own timing. In these first few verses, we see that Jesus had a large crowd gathering around him. They had begun to see the things that he was doing. They saw him healing the sick, it says. And so they were gathering around him, curious. They wanted to know more. They were hearing him teach. They were wondering what kind of miracles he might perform next. And so thousands of people are gathering around, crowding to see him. And then Jesus goes up onto the mountain and he sat down with his disciples. And it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Now, David mentioned a few weeks back that the first Passover that's mentioned in John is when Jesus is driving the money changers out of the temple. And then this is now the second Passover. So assuming that John has given us a timeline, we have about a year has passed since then. We're coming close to a year. And these people have had a year to hear the stories of Jesus. They've had time to hear about the miracles he was doing. His ministry had begun and that's why a crowd was beginning to form. This wasn't sudden. We've only gone in a few chapters, so it's easy to feel like only a few weeks has passed for us. 
And if you sit down and just read this in your home, maybe you read it in a couple of nights and we progress through this quickly, but the crowd has had time to hear what Jesus has done and be curious. But I also think it's really interesting that next it says, after it says the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Therefore, Jesus lifting his eyes and seeing the crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? You see, the Passover also is the setting in which this is happening. Jesus is looking around and it says, essentially, because it is the Passover, he looked around and he, bega- and he began to work out his plan. See, to understand this passage, it's important to look back to Exodus 16. I'm not going to take a lot of time to like work through that today. You're welcome to flip to it and kind of look through as I, as I speak. But in that setting, God is providing bread for the people of Israel while they wander through the desert. They have just seen God do miraculous things through Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. They have seen the Egyptians chase them off only to then cross the Red Sea and escape by the hand of God. They have seen Moses as a deliverer and a leader for their people. And so they see these signs each year as they come to Passover and they celebrate the way that God delivered them from Egypt at this final plague where the firstborn in every household was to die. But God said, if you sacrifice a lamb and you spread the blood on the doorposts of your home, everyone inside will be saved. That he would see that sacrifice, he would see that perfect blood of the lamb and he would pass over. And through that, he miraculously delivered the people from Egypt. And so these things are on the mind of God's people around Passover. They're already thinking about the Exodus. They're thinking about the way that God is the deliverer and how he provided for his people. And then they moved out into the wilderness and they were grumbling because they didn't have any food. It's in this timing, in this setting that Jesus performs this miracle. And he looks out among the crowd and he knows that their hearts are ready to hear this message. He knows what kind of image it's going to conjure up. You see, for us, this would kind of seem like poor timing. We would have planned ahead. We would have told people, you need to pack food. We would have told people, we need to be prepared. Hey, if you're coming to follow us, make sure you pack up a little. Bring a granola bar. We're going to be a while. We're going to the wilderness. My wife is good at that kind of planning. I forget things. I pack light and I move on. Jesus has his own time and he also uses his own methods. He waited on purpose. It says, he asked Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And he said this to him, for he already knew himself what he was intending to do. He already knew what was coming. Philip didn't know. See, we plan, and like my wife will plan to bring food and we'll feed the kids before we get in the car, but she packs because she knows that when we get in the car, immediately they're all gonna say they're hungry anyway. They already want food. Jesus doesn't have them pack anything. He doesn't tell his disciples to spread the word, tell everyone in the crowds, let everyone know the new people coming on need to bring something. Instead, he waits and they're on the side of the mountain and he looks to Philip and he says, so where are we gonna get bread? I think the way that Jesus teaches in this process is also a part of his method. See, we often want somebody who will just give us the answer. We want somebody who will just teach us what is right. They'll tell us what's coming. And Jesus often instead leads with stories and questions. Instead, he, leaves his, he 
leaves the answers out in many cases. He doesn't even give the answer. He just invites us into the process to see what he's doing and to experience it with him. So he asks Philip this question, knowing what he's going to do, but Philip has no idea. And he says, Philip, where can we buy bread for all these people? And of course, Philip looks around and is probably pretty wide-eyed at this point and says, even if we had 200 denarii, there's not enough money to buy bread for all of these people, not even for them to have a little. A denarius was like a day's wage. So we're talking 200 days, more than half the year of working just to provide food for each person to have a little bit. It's like, we can't possibly buy this. You told us not to even bring a money bag when we went on journeys like this. You expect us to have money to buy food for all these people? I imagine at this point, if you've ever had an event where you were planning and realized you don't have enough food for everybody, you might get a little glimpse into how the disciples are feeling. It's like, Jesus, you didn't prepare us for this. Even worse, it would be like if you planned an event and didn't expect to feed everybody and then somebody said, so where are we getting all the food? You're like, you didn't tell me about food. Our pastor, our lead pastor, when I was in Missouri, he and I would have conversations before events where he was always panicking. We would have an event where everybody's supposed to bring food and he would look around. He's like, do you think we have enough food? Not a lot of people have brought food. I don't know if we're gonna have enough. Do we need to run to the store? Should I go and get something? And for the first couple of events, I would just kind of like wrestle it out with him. It's like, okay, well, here's what we do. If not enough people bring anything, we'll run to the store. You know what I figured out? We always had food. In church, when you're having people bring food, there is always enough food. And so no matter what was happening, he would be nervous. It'd be 10 minutes before the event's going to start. And then suddenly everybody shows up with all of their food and we were fine. So eventually I learned to just tell him, don't worry about it. I'm sure there's going to be enough. There's always enough. We have never had a shortage of food. There's always leftovers. We always have too much food. It'll be fine. But the apostles are looking around and they're like, we didn't bring food. We don't have money for this. In fact, Andrew offers up what little that he could find, but I think even he clearly knows this is just an example of how we can't do this right now. Andrew says, there is a boy here who has five loaves of bread and two fish, but what are these for so many people? He's not offering it up as an actual solution. He's offering it up as part of the problem. This is all we have, Jesus. There's just not enough. And what is Jesus' response? Have the people sit down. I think this is where they're probably sweating it out a little bit. Like you're building up expectations for these people and we don't have enough. All we have is enough to give everybody or give a few people a taste, just enough that the people in the back are gonna be really frustrated and the people in the front are gonna want more and we don't have it. We have just enough to make this whole crowd angry instead of making things better. But Jesus tells them to have the people sit down. And so they go and they separate everybody out into the grass and they sit and start sitting in groups and they start to spread out. And Jesus takes the bread and it says he gives thanks and begins to distribute the bread and the fish. See, Jesus provides abundantly. He does things in his way and in his timing And when he acts, he has the power to provide abundantly. Just like God provided abundantly for the Israelites as they wandered 40 years in the desert and he gave them bread each and every day, enough to sustain them every day for 40 years. 
to the point where they started complaining about the bread and he gave them quails. And then they started complaining because they had meat that was coming out of their nostrils. Even when they didn't really, even when they got sick of it, like he provided to an abundance. They had all that they needed every day. And in this case, Jesus starts separating out. It says that each ate until he had all that he had wanted. And then Jesus tells his disciples to go and gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. There wasn't even enough to feed everybody, let alone having leftovers. I've seen some commentaries that say this wasn't, that it wasn't about Jesus multiplying bread, that actually the real miracle was just people sharing and participating in this together. There's no sharing. There's not enough for sharing. Nobody's even getting, not everybody's getting a taste if you spread out everything that's there. Jesus took very little. And let's be honest, he could have done it with nothing. He could have just said, bring me a few baskets and then start passing them out and they could have been full of bread. But Jesus takes this little boy's lunch and he starts dividing it out and putting it in baskets and they spread them out and everybody eats until they're full. I'm sure a bunch of us can relate to what that feels like this week. You eat until you're full and there's still more and there's still more to eat and they start filling up 12 baskets of leftovers. And then finally something clicks in the people and they look at him and they start to see him as a leader, as somebody who's sent from God. But the thing I wanna point out in these next couple of verses is that Jesus doesn't transform into just the king that we want. Because the people start to see him as a potential king, but they still are not getting who he actually is. See, they look at it and their first thought is, just like God used Moses to provide for the people in the desert. Maybe Jesus is going to be that leader. Moses led the people out from under Egypt. They were in slavery. He led them out from the authority of Pharaoh. He led them off so they can move into the promised land and be a free people under God. That's what we need. We need this guy to be our new leader who's gonna lead us out from under Rome. They started to conjure up ideas in their mind of what he, kind of leader Jesus was going to be. The thing is, they were right, and he is king. He just wasn't coming to be the king that they expected. He wasn't transforming into the king that they want because he cannot be manipulated by us. The people looked out and said, it says they saw the sign which he had performed, and they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And yes, he was a prophet in a way, but much more than a prophet. See, they saw him like the biblical prophets in their history. The ones who would come and do miraculous signs and proclaim the word of the Lord and try to like lead and guide the people, but they didn't realize that he is truly the king of the universe. He also will not be forced into our image. In 15, it says, Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus looked out and he could see the, the sparkle in their eye and he could read the, what was going on in their hearts and he knew they're going to try to make me into a different kind of king than I truly came to be. And we might look at this and think that we don't do that. But oftentimes we begin to 
have these ideas that, you know what, I really want Jesus to just accept what I want to do. I want to continue in this lifestyle, even though the Bible has clearly called it sin. I want to continue in this path, even though I know it's not really going to be honoring to God. I want to do things my way, and I want God to come alongside of me and encourage it. I want to do things my way. But we are not going to force God into our image and say we need to be molded into his image. I even saw a video just the other day that was a woman talking about how if God really was all-powerful and really loved her, then he would give her the signs that she needed so that she could believe that he is God. And it's easy to look at that if you're here in the church and you've been growing up in this or you've been a believer for a while to look and be like, man, that's just such a a selfish, selfish way to look at God. As if he needs to appease you and do things that would make you believe instead of you trusting in him because of who he is. But even as believers at times, we want... We want Jesus to be the kind of king who's going to give us what we want when we want it. Instead of molding our views, our opinions of him, and our expectations of him to be centered around his true identity as king of the universe, as our creator and Lord, we have no power to manipulate God into being something that he isn't. Jesus is not a king who can be coerced and manipulated into following our will when it does not line up with his will. He is only going to do the will of his father. He didn't come to appease us. He came to be our savior and king. He came to rescue us. He came to heal us, but he did not come to just give us whatever we want. Jesus was not going to be forced into their idea of a king. He didn't come to just overthrow Rome. In fact, he came to prove that he is the king, not only over the Jews, but over the Romans and the Greeks and over this entire universe. The earthly throne that they wanted to give him was too small for Jesus. It was inadequate, insufficient. He is worthy of much more. One of my questions for you today is, do you mold your idea of who God is around what we see in his word, what we see confirmed about his character and his power instead of choosing what we want to be and then mold God to that? There's a phrase that we use sometimes that can be good if we use it the right way and it can also be very misleading and dangerous. When we talk about my God and my Jesus, when we use that in a very personal way that he loves me intimately and I love him and I desire him, that is a wonderful way to talk about my God and my Jesus. But when we use that to say, well, my God wouldn't do this even though what scripture tells us about him says he would. Or when we say, well, my God doesn't act this way or think this way, or this isn't a part of his character. Even though when we say that we're contradicting what he has told us about himself, then that phrase becomes deceptive and destructive because we don't get to change who God is. We must accept Jesus for the king that he truly is. And this is where I love that we have this passage tied together today where we go right from Jesus feeding these people and they're ready to like force him into becoming their king, becoming the king that they wanted. And Jesus withdraws away, and then we see this experience of the disciples. 
It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then they had rowed about three or four miles, and they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. A little side note, I think it's fascinating that the disciples took off before Jesus. I can't imagine if we all went on a missions trip together and Dave said, you know, I'm going up to the mountain to pray. You guys all cross the sea without me and I'll just meet up with you later. We would be a little confused. Isn't he supposed to be leading us? Like, isn't he here to kind of show us the way? Why is he staying behind? I would be, I'd be a little concerned about that if I was one of the disciples, but Either he had already informed them that he was going to meet up with them later, or they had confidence that he would find his way and it was time for them to move because they went out across the sea. And the wind starts blowing and the water starts churning and it's getting dangerous and they're starting to be concerned. And then they see Jesus walking out across the water. In fact, in some accounts of this passage, it says that they thought it was a ghost coming towards them. They were frightened because they saw this and it did not make sense. It did not compute. A person is not supposed to walk out across the water to our boat. And the way Jesus calls him, he comes up and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. And this is one, one passage where I don't always like the way a lot of our English translations portray it. Because like in, mine, in my NASB, it says, it is I, do not be afraid. And some will say something like, I am here do not be afraid, or something to that effect. But the, the Greek actually reads, I am, do not be afraid. And I love that because John frequently uses these I am phrases. He talks about how Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread. I am the living water. These things that teach us something about who Jesus is. But he also uses these phrases where the gra- grammar seems to be incorrect. When he says, before Abraham was, I am. And in most of your Bibles, it probably reads exactly like that. And we said, the grammar's not correct. And so John is saying, Jesus is actually declaring to be God himself. See, again, the disciples are seeing this. They're seeing the people fed in the desert and they're thinking back to Moses and the way God delivered his people. And when Moses questioned God and said, how are the people gonna know that you are the one who sent me? God said, when they ask who sent you, tell them, I am has sent you. I don't think it's a coincidence that John records the passage this way, where Jesus comes out and just says, I am, do not be afraid. Their mind goes back to the story of Moses and God revealing himself as I am. And they see Jesus walking across the water, doing something that is absolutely impossible, except for God. I think at that moment, they're beginning to realize this is the great I am. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 14, where this passage is also recorded, it says that those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you certainly are God's son. It's like this moment was one of revelation for them where they look out and they say, this Jesus, he's not just the prophet that people have been saying. He's not just a leader 
that we have been looking for. In fact, he's more than even just a king. He is the great I am, the maker of heaven and earth, the king of king and Lord of lords. Suddenly they begin to see him for who he truly is. He's better than the earthly king that many wanted. He is the king of kings. Now the disciples would struggle with this some throughout Jesus' ministry. They had their doubts. They had moments when they weren't sure, when they were still trying to understand better who he was and what he came to do. But I think in this moment, unlike the people gathering in the wilderness who ate the bread, the disciples looked and finally they saw their God and King for who he is, not just for who they wanted him to be. When many wanted him to be the one who would lead the revolt and lead them out from under the power of Rome, he instead was the one who came to save us from our sins the one who came to redeem us and heal us. The one who came to conquer sin and death. They finally began to see this is truly the son of God. The God who led Moses, the God who delivered Israel, and the God who delivers us as well. The only appropriate response to that is to submit to him. In fact, I love that this Final verse in 21, after it says, so they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. He gets into the boat and it's like they just made it to the other side. They're safe and he's with them. But I love how it says, it says, so they were willing to receive him into the boat. It's like they saw what he was doing. They were terrified and he said, I am, do not be afraid. And then they were willing. They were willing to submit, to pull him into the boat, to trust him. The only appropriate response to recognizing Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as God himself in flesh, is to submit to him as our king. To mold our will to his. To honor and glorify him and to follow him and to serve him. So instead of creating this image of a God that revolves around our desires and our wants to mold ourselves into his image, to see ourselves as being made in his image, we do not have the right or the power to change Jesus or manipulate him into a king and a God that is more palatable to us. We don't get to change him. We don't get to look and say, you know what? I like Jesus and I think he could be this for like, I think he could be the kind of king who will give me my desires. He's not just our buddy who's, when he's in charge, we can be like, you know what? He's going to give me the easy stuff, the easy life. My job gets easier now because he's my boss. My, my life gets easier and I get what I want. No, instead he is the king. We throw ourselves to his feet and we say, Lord, your will be done because he is who he is and he will only do the will of his father. Jesus didn't come to do our will. He cannot be manipulated by our desires. And it's good news. It's good news that he can't be changed by us because the king that he is is the king that we need and it's better than the king we would make for ourselves. 
His power is greater than the king we would create for ourselves. His character is greater. He is holy and just and righteous. He is the great and perfect king. And he is exactly the king that we need. We must come to him humbly and say, Lord, I desire to be more like you. Not coming to him saying, Lord, I want you to be more like me. We conform our desires to him. And one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Psalm 37, 4. It's what I come back to a lot and thinking about this passage and how we try to manipulate Jesus into being the king we want him to be. This passage instead says that we are to delight ourselves in the Lord and he will give us the desires of our heart. It'd be easy to look at that passage and just say, well, if we follow Jesus, then we're gonna get everything we want. But the idea that we are to delight ourselves in the Lord means we care more about him and drawing close to him and our love for him and him being our God and our creator and king. We want him more than anything else. And if that's what we want, then he's going to give it to us. If what we want more than anything else in this world is Jesus, he's not going to withhold himself from us. We come to him wanting to give everything and lay it all at his feet because he's worth it. Because he is a God who provides. A God who provides abundantly. A king who loves us enough to die for us. A king who desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His longing is for us, and so we long for him. He's better than the king we want. He's not always going to be the king we want. But he's always the king that we need. And so because of that, we give ourselves to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a great and powerful king. Lord, that you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, I thank you that you are a provider and a loving king. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to submit to your will. Lord, that when our ideas of what we want you to be doesn't match up with who you are, that we would steer our expectations to be in line with you and your character. That we would grow in our understanding of your holiness. That we would desire to love and know you and serve you. Lord, that we would lay everything at your feet. Lord, when we come to you humbly, Lord, you are always going to be the king that we need even if we, you may not always be the king that we want right now, a king who will challenge us, a king who won't let us stay how we are. Lord, we need you, we love you, and I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and transform us into your image. In your name we pray, amen.